All right, well, good evening, everybody. Thank you so much uh, for choosing to be with us this evening. And I would like to say I would like to personally thank all of you for continuing to support my work in the Ukraine. You have been, uh, you're, you have been seeing to the needs of both the spiritual needs of the Ukrainians as well as the physical needs because it not only goes to spreading the gospel, but it also goes to feeding the hungry. We also run a number of institutions, some for mental health, some for uh, small clinics and hospitals in the very rural and poor communities there. So I just wanted to, before I get into the lesson this evening, let you know that your money is being well spent and it is continuing to see to the needs of those in the Ukraine. And I also wanted to say I appreciate your commitment also to the physical and spiritual needs of the brethren here by not only having a Bible class, but also incorporating cardio into that this evening. That was very helpful. I actually wanted to join in, but then I thought, if I do all that in a suit, I'm going to be winded by the time I get up here and have to actually teach. But uh, I do appreciate you doing that. Um, this, morning, uh, this evening, we're going to be looking at a song called Follow Me by Ira F. Stanfill. It's not one of the more popular ones. In fact, I've even visited congregations that don't even know this song. I don't know if this is one you regularly sing here, but it is one of my favorites for sure. And uh, I thought that the best way to introduce this one is actually to just go ahead and sing it. And so if you would, I'm going to go ahead and lead us in all three verses of this song. I traveled down a lonely road and no one seemed to care. The burden on my weary back had bowed me to despair. I oft complained to Jesus how folks were treating me. And then I heard him say so tenderly. My feet were all so weary upon the Calvary road. The cross became so heavy, I fell beneath the load. Be faithful, weary pilgrim, the Just lift your cross and follow close to me. I work so hard for Jesus, I often boast and say, I've sacrificed a lot of things to walk the narrow way. I gave up fame and fortune, I'm worth a lot to thee. And then I hear him gently say to me, I left a throne of glory and counted it but loss. My hands were nailed in anger upon a cruel cross. But now we'll make the journey with your hands safe in mine. So lift your 
cross and follow close to me. O Jesus, if I die upon a foreign field someday, t'would be no more than love demands, no less could I repay. No greater love hath mortal man than for a friend to die. These are the words he gently spoke to me. If just a cup of water I place within your hand, then just a cup of water is all that I demand. But if by death to living they can thy glory see, I'll take my cross and follow close to thee. And I think after hearing the words of that song, you can understand why it's one of my favorites. It's a very melancholy, but a very touching song, and it, I think, accurately describes our walk as Christians. And by the way, before we uh, really dig into this, I wanted to let everybody know, I was told this is going to be formatted like a Bible class, and I teach a Bible class with a lot of audience interaction, so if anybody has a question, feel free to raise your hand. Uh, I planned this in such a way that there would be some audience interaction there. So let's ask the question first, what does this song mean? What is the message that is underlying the theme of this song? And I think it's pretty obvious it's about our walk with Christ. It's about the various trials and tribulations and pitfalls that come with being a follower and a disciple of Jesus Christ. That's, that's fairly, fairly obvious, very surface level, but there's a lot underlying that, and I think that it doesn't necessarily describe just one walk. In fact, this verse really describes three very different walks, doesn't it? If you look at the three different verses, you can see very different themes being expounded upon in each of these verses. The first one is talking about somebody that is downtrodden, that is beaten down by the trials of life. The second one is talking about someone that's kind of the opposite. He's sort of on top of the world, but part of that is also that he's become arrogant, and prideful. And because of that, there's some instruction needed there as well. And in the final one, it sounds like somebody that is far from home, that is away from his loved ones, and is doing so as a part of his proclamation and, and a part of his testament to who he follows, which of course is Christ. But there is some sorrow and some hardship that comes with that as well. And so these three are describing very different walks with Christ. And so my question that I want you to think about, and we'll get to the answer eventually, but I want you to kind of have this in the back of your mind as we go through this particular uh, lesson tonight. Is this about three different Christians? Or is this about the same Christian at different stages of his life? Are we seeing somebody who is trying to follow Christ? And I do think it's interesting that in this, if there is a progression there, we see a lot of the songs that have a progression kind of start out with somebody 
that is not a follower of Christ and transitions into becoming one, all three of these verses describe somebody that already has a relationship with Christ. And so that is our starting point. We could think of, you know, um, less of me and, and more of you, the, the song that kind of goes through that story. Um, and then, of course, ends with all of you and none of me. This one starts with somebody that has already dedicated their life to Christ and is sort of experiencing difficulties as they're going through that walk. And so I think that it's perfectly valid to see that this could be talking about one specific Christian as he's dealing with different problems. And we understand this too, that we have different issues as we go through life. A younger Christian that maybe obeys the gospel as a teenager has very, very different issues and very different problems in his life than somebody that maybe is a Christian but has been an elder for several years and has adult children. And so because of that, we could see possibly, potentially, these three verses being about the same person going through different trials in their Christian life or could be about three different Christians entirely. And actually there is a little bit of debate as to whether or not which is the correct interpretation. Now, I will say personally, I'm not sure that it matters that much. And I know that seems strange for me, somebody who is literally a talk show host and is paid to give opinions, to not really think the opinion matters all that much. But I do think that that's the case. Whether we're talking about one person dealing with different problems in different stages of life or dealing with three completely different Christians, I think the message really stays pretty much unaltered. And so I'm not sure that either one is a bad answer, but I do want you to kind of think about that as we're going through this to determine what your stance on that is. So the backstory of this might give us a little bit better understanding of how this song came about and some of the themes that are expressed in it. First of all, it was inspired when Ira Stamphill wrote it by a missionary couple that he saw at a church gathering one evening. So this is a a missionary couple that was talking about a trip to Africa and some of the hardships that they saw as they were going through trying to spread the gospel in Africa. In fact, uh, at one point, the man's wife, the the missionary's wife that went with him, almost died. And they were talking about having to deal with trying to sort through their own personal struggles in conjunction with their duty to preach the gospel to people in Africa, seek and save the lost. And at one point, the husband just gave up. He wanted to go home. He didn't want to do this. He actually said, and this is the way he described it in the lesson that that Stampill talked about, he begged God to send somebody else because he couldn't do it anymore. And eventually what did happen is his wife did recover, and the Lord took care of them, and they continued to do mission work in Africa for some time. But this relates a very real thing that sometimes we can feel overwhelmed by both the weight of our own personal responsibilities, and and that's not to say that those personal responsibilities aren't big. Like, just because our greatest mission is ultimately to God and to spread the gospel does not mean that the other problems that we deal with as human beings are insignificant. I mean, the Bible deals with that a lot, and it wouldn't deal with that if it saw them as merely trifles. This is why we're not called to go away and live in a monastery as monks. We're supposed to be in the world, and we're supposed to live the way Jesus did, and Jesus was around people constantly. And so those problems are very real. The Bible recognizes that, and and Stanfield, when he writes this song, recognizes that as well, and that's a lot of what this song is talking about. 
And uh, he actually dealt with his own fair share of problems before pinning this song as well. Stanfield's wife actually left him in 1948, but he never gave up hope. Even though his wife left him, he did not seek remarriage. He did not look because he didn't believe that his divorce was scriptural, and because of that, he never gave up hope that eventually his wife would come back to him. And so even five years after they divorced, he, he still had never quit on her in, in believing that she would eventually come back and, and that they would be able to be united as God originally intended in his words. But she died in a car accident in 1951, which of course ended his hope that she might return to him one day. Uh, and of course that was something that he had to deal with on his own because he was convinced that God was going to eventually bring her back to him and of course she wound up dying instead. And he wrote this song two years after that. He finally started picking up the pieces of his life and putting them back together and was able to pin this song as sort of a, I guess it would be an autobiography in a sense, of course set to music and also inspired by the missionaries that he was talking about earlier, but at the same time, it very much mirrors the struggles that he himself went through and the phases that he himself went through from somebody that was in the depths of despair that we see in the first verse that feels like the burdens of life are too much for him. And somebody that also experienced what it was like to be in the second verse. Somebody that thinks too highly of themselves, that thinks that their contributions to the kingdom uh, don't necessarily merit the treatment that they've gotten from God. And then the final verse, which is really more directed towards the missionary couple he was inspired with, but also in part from his own understanding that if you die or, or give up your life or give up anything, in the pursuit of spreading the gospel, is that really any more than love demands or less than you could repay? And so this really is a culmination of him coming to grips with the experience of his own life and some of the trials that he went through as somebody that was trying to do his best to live his life for Christ. There are three Christian walks that we've already talked about that we kind of expounded upon, but I'm going to give them names just for the sake of keeping the the lesson kind of organized here. So I think the first verse we would call burdened and lonely because you may recall that the very first part of that verse talks about somebody that traveled down a lonely road and no one seemed to care. The burden on their weary back had bowed them to despair. And so they're, they're experiencing two problems here. And this could take many, many, many different forms. But the person is essentially lonely. They feel as though they've been rejected by other people, which probably was inspired by Stanfield having his wife leave him. I'm not saying that was the only inspiration, but it seems as though that was something that heavily influenced him. And also somebody that has a lot of burdens to bear. And that's difficult enough when you have a support system, but imagine doing it when you feel like you're on your own. The second verse, I would describe as self-righteous and proud. This is somebody that believes that their contributions to the kingdom are something that are very valuable to Jesus. That... God almost needs them, in a sense, that they are a valuable asset in the kingdom of God. And I think the desire to be that is not necessarily misplaced. I think that a righteous-minded Christian is somebody that wants to be a valuable tool for our Father to use. But when you start acknowledging that and thinking about that and bragging about the contributions that you've made, I think that it can take the form of pride, which is, I would say, perhaps the deadliest of sins. 
And then the final verse, I think you could take it a couple of different ways, but the way I would characterize it as humble and self-loathing. Because in the first two verses, we see a problem that is presented by the person that is singing. And in the second part of that verse, we see Jesus answering with what the solution is. But I think, and this is the way that I originally understood it, I saw the third verse as kind of a solution and a resolution to that, and and the third verse is different than the first two in that sense. But the more I thought about it, the more I thought, I don't think it is breaking that thing. I think that what's going on in verse number three, where the singer is saying, if I died upon a foreign field someday, it would be no more than love demands, no less could I repay. No greater love hath mortal man than for a friend to die. I think what that's talking about, and then Jesus' subsequent answer to that, if just a cup of water I place within your hand, then just a cup of water is all that I demand. I think what is being illustrated here is that Jesus is answering a sense of self-loathing. That the person that is singing this is saying, uh, yeah, I know that my deeds are not worth anything, and I understand it's, it's sort of the exact opposite of verse 2, right? I understand that the, the things that I'm giving up, the sacrifices that I'm making, that they're not really worthy of you, and, and I'm so unworthy of your love. And Jesus' answer is not one of uh, sort of affirming what he's saying. It's kind of the opposite. He's saying, if just a cup of water I place within your hand, then just a cup of water is all that I demand. I think it's actually correcting. It's explaining to the singer that, yes, I, I understand that ultimately your, your love, your contributions are not something that I quote-unquote need. But anything that I ask of you, anything that I expect of you is something that I have already given you the ability to carry out. And so we'll get into each of these themes in a little more detail here. So I want to look at the first one first, which would be a good place to start out, I would think. Um, if somebody would read Genesis 1, 18 through 20 for me, please. Genesis 1, 18 through 20. Kind of like we're starting at the beginning of the song, I think it makes sense to start at the beginning of man's problem. So let's go ahead and, and read that one. Um, I, I believe it's Genesis 1, 18 through 20 is what I was requesting. Did, did I get the chapter wrong? Okay, it's chapter 2. See, this happens to me too. So, so you want chapter 2? Yeah, if you, if you wouldn't mind. After you went through all the trouble of reading the first one. I want you to take note of something. This is before the fall of man. This is before Eve existed. This is before the first sin entered into the world. 
Up until this point in the creation narrative, every single thing that God has seen that He has made, He, he follows up with and saw that it was good. This is the first indication anywhere in Scripture of something in God's creation being not good. And it's before sin enters the world. And what is that thing that is not good? Adam is lonely. He needs a companion. Adam had a relationship with God at this point that was even closer in proximity than what we have right now, in a sense. I mean, it was certainly more direct. And God actually spoke to him one-on-one. And yet, despite this, God still sees that Adam has a need for a helper. Now, maybe Adam would have been just fine if he had never created Eve even just left Adam to his own devices by himself. Maybe. I'm not saying that I know that for sure. But it seems that God is looking at this and sees that there is a need that is not being met even by his own presence. And so because of that, he creates another being like Adam. And it is because he needed a helper suitable for him, which he did not find amongst the animals. And that's also very important because if I had a helper suitable for me, maybe I would have got the right chapter there. Uh, But the point is, mankind needs other people. It's how we're designed. It's how we're built. Even in a perfect, sinless state, that is still a need that Adam had. And this song speaks to that need. It talks about somebody that is lonely, that is by themselves, that feels like the whole world has rejected them, and they're on their own. And I think that that's something that starts out very early on. And uh, if someone would also read, and I hope I got the right chapter on this one, Genesis three sixteen through 19. Alright, so we looked at the first problem, which was loneliness, and just a chapter later, we're looking at the second problem. So, first we had loneliness, which granted, God did go a long way in solving and creating Eve, but then we have the second problem, which is burdens. Right after, as a consequence for their sin, Adam and Eve are both saddled with their own burden, in Eve, pain and childbirth, and in Adam, having to work, and by the sweat of his brow, creating his own food. And so... These are literally the oldest problems in history. Burdens and loneliness. And I think that that's the reason that this song speaks to us in such a personal way. Is that it's speaking to both of the oldest problems humankind knows. That we need companionship. And we also need relief from the burdens of life that are a result of the things that we do. Just like Adam and Eve did. And so there's something very primordial and and something that is very attuned to our nature, which is the reason that this song is so profound for us. Uh, These are literally, as I said, the world's oldest problems. And loneliness, I think, is sometimes very much underestimated in how terrible it can be for people. Now, I'm an extreme individualist, and I'm also an introvert. But i got to tell you, even after this last year with the pandemic, even I started getting lonely. And I can entertain myself for a long time without need for interaction. 
Anyone that knows me well will attest to this. But ultimately, even somebody that is more okay than most other people would be, eventually we're going to need human companionship. And the thing is, loneliness can be fatal. It has a lot of negative side effects, even for people that are introverted. 50% increased in dementia is recognized with those who do not live with somebody or have some kind of constant companionship. It's also associated with a 29% increased risk of heart disease, a 32% increased risk of stroke, and it is associated with higher rates of depression, anxiety, and suicide. All of these things are significantly higher with people that either live alone or live without close friends or family. If someone does not have a social network consisting of both some family and some friends, all of these things are a reality, and it's because it is living in contrast to the way our Creator made us to live. We are communal creatures by nature. Think about it. We just talked about the, the world's two oldest problems. Let's fast forward just a little bit with Cain and Abel. What was Cain's punishment for what he did to his brother? You have to be an outcast now. You have to live apart from mankind. And so God recognizes very early on that this is, one of, this is humankind's oldest problem to have to deal with. And heart attacks are actually four times more likely to be fatal. So even if you happen to have one, it's four times more likely to kill you if you do so when loneliness is associated. And so these are staggering and, and frankly scary statistics. And I think it also emphasizes our own duty as the body of Christ to reach out to those in our midst that might be lonely and to make sure that they don't feel that way so that they can, can reciprocate as well. So what are the burdens of life that we carry? And, and this is very open-ended, but I'm just asking, generally speaking, what are some of the burdens that we bear as Christians? Okay, so everyone else's soul, everybody that we come in contact with, we are very aware of the fact that we can injure that. You know, if it's a brother in Christ, we have the ability to discourage them through our actions. If it's somebody that's lost, we may not say or do the right thing that may lead them towards Christ. And so that's something that, you know, we would necessarily have to bear as people that know the truth. Any other thoughts? Okay, that's a big one. I mean, that's one that I deal with on a constant basis because I have a lot of family members, and, and you probably do too, that just don't know the truth, and even when it's been presented to them, they might reject it. Maybe you even have family members that did know the truth at one time and were members of the body of Christ that have fallen away. I mean, that weighs heavy on my mind. I'm sure it does yours too. Any others? Yeah, mankind is the only animal that knows it is going to die. We have self-awareness. And so because of that, we have to deal with our own mortality and, and what we're going to do with that. Now, thankfully, that can be relieved by the fact that we know that we have an eternal home waiting for us if we live the way Christ told us to, but still doesn't change the fact that we're going to leave a whole lot of stuff undone. We're going to leave this world with a whole lot of things that we don't know. And we're going to leave people behind that we love. And so all of these things are burdens of life. I think, interestingly enough, and I think y'all have done a really good job here, 
I was going to ask as my follow-up question how many of these are unnecessary, but I think you hit on some pretty heavy ones there that I, you know, anybody would have to deal with. I think a lot of the things that I was talking about, though, that I kind of had in my head were just normal mundane things, you know, having to get everything done. I, we're busy people, and there's a lot on our plates. Uh, another burden that I know a lot of people are living with now in our digital age is how much information is out there. Sometimes not being able to consume enough of it or worrying about consuming too much, which can also be a problem. And so that's just a couple of examples, but I think that if nothing else, that shows that you're an audience that has their priorities straight, which I'm happy to see. Uh, let's also look at, uh, at the second part of this. If somebody would go ahead and look up 1 Kings 19.10 and read that for us, please. Yes, sir. He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts for the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down by an altar, and slain by a prophet for the sword. And I, even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. So this is a passage by the prophet Isaiah. He's distressed. He's in a bad way. Because he just won a great victory for God and thought that, okay, this is it. This is definitive. It's going to be over. And what happened is Jezebel redoubled her efforts to take his life. And he's been fleeing. He's been running for his own life, trying to just keep himself alive. And finally, even though he's done everything God asked him to do, done everything exactly right up to this point, at least as far as we know from the biblical narrative, there's still people wanting to kill him. There's still people that want him to die just for doing the right thing and being the only person in the room that has the courage to speak the truth. And of course that weighed heavy on him. And that's why we see here, he says, what? All of these burdens are crushing me down, and I'm by myself. I'm the only one left that is still trying to do the right thing. He says, and because I alone am left, they've sought to take my life. Now, if we look at 1 Kings 19.18, which is just right after it, God's answer to him is, yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel... All the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. So actually there were 7,000 other people that thought exactly the way Elijah did and he just didn't realize it. And I wonder how often that we feel like this too. With all the problems that we just listed or the, the plethora of other burdens that we could talk about, how many times do we feel like we're the only person that knows what that feels like? How often do we as Christians not reach out to our brothers and sisters because... For whatever reason, we, we just don't want to bother them, or we don't know if they would understand, but ultimately, that's the support system God put in place for us to deal with these things. And it is true now, and it was true when Elijah was there. Because when Elijah was dealing with this, he felt like he was the only person that actually cared about what God thought, and he found out, actually, there's 7,000 people in Israel that care about you, that care about what you care about, and care about following me. And so... His loneliness was still real to him, but at the end of the day, I think that he greatly overestimated it, as we can see from this passage. And then we see in the next verse, 1 Kings 19.19, 19, So he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Saphath, while he was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen in front of him. 
and he, and he with the twelfth. And Elijah came over to him and threw his cloak on him. Now, isn't that interesting? Elijah just displayed both of the problems that we were talking about. He was lonely, and he felt burdened. And what did God do? He said, you're not alone. There are 7,000 other people that care about me. And he relieved his burdens. He told them it was going to be okay. And then we see in the very next verse, he sends them Elisha. And so sometimes all we have to do when we're dealing with these things, whether it's the burden of loneliness or another burden, is just ask. God had something right around the corner for him, and Elisha, we know, becomes like his son and becomes the, the person that winds up taking over his mantle Literally, in this sense, he actually took his cloak off of him and put it on him. So he literally is the person that takes up his mantle, and we don't really get any indication that Elijah's lonely anymore after this. And so that's something that I think we should consider as well, that sometimes the answer God has in store for us, and it's just around the corner, if we'll be just a little bit patient. I agree. I, I think that's absolutely spot on. In fact, I have the very verse that you were about. <laughs> no, it's, it's okay. I'm glad you got ahead of me because that means I'm on the right track. Um, but no, I, I think that that's absolutely correct. And another thing that I, I think about too when we're talking about being able to bear one another's burdens, um, I do think that the devil does play a very active role in trying to convince us that we're the only ones that have to deal with this, that we're the only ones that really understands what this is like. And another thing that I think he puts on us as well is you don't really want to burden them with whatever it is you're dealing through. But think about this. Has anybody ever come to you with a spiritual problem that you weren't flattered that they sought out your advice on? I can't speak for everybody in the room, but I know every time anybody's ever come to me with a spiritual problem, now that didn't mean I always had all the answers, but I was at the very least glad that they reached out to me. And I think understanding that and and remembering that the next time that we ourselves have a burden that we're dealing with might go a long way in alleviating some of that anxiety that we're talking about. Galatians 6, 1 through 5 states, Brothers and sisters, even if a person is caught in any wrongdoing who are spiritual to restore such a person in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you are not tempted as well, bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks that he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But each one must examine his own work, and then he will have the reason for boasting. But to himself alone, and not to another, for each one will bear his own load. Now this is a really interesting dichotomy, because it talks about bearing our own burdens, but it also tells us to bear one another's burdens. And I think that what it's saying here is is that we can't neglect our own problems and the things and, and our own responsibilities in favor of helping out somebody else, but don't our own responsibilities become a lot lighter when we share them with somebody? 
And so I think that that's exactly what Paul is kind of hitting at here. He's saying, yes, you have to bear your own burden, but won't your burden be a lot lighter if you share them with others and if they share theirs with you? And so there is sort of this interconnected interdependency with one another in the community of faith. And I think the most interesting part of this verse to me was he says, bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. So not only is this a good idea, not only is it great because it's practical and it works, or because it makes us feel good, it's actually a command from Christ. It's something that fulfills his vision for what his people are supposed to be. And I think that that is not in any way insignificant. Mm-hmm. He wanted them to understand that if they were getting was as important from people as what they were giving to the people. Right, and they, there is a certain amount of faith involved in that, of course, because he's saying you have to have faith that you're going to be provided for. But the second half of that is he kind of wanted them to depend on other people, didn't they? I mean, wasn't was that the point? Because if they don't have that stuff for themselves then of course they're going to have to depend on the people they encounter, and that creates that bond. And maybe, I think that this is part of God's wisdom, made them a little more apt to hear what they had to say. Because if you're coming to somebody as someone in need, as somebody that uh, understands that, that you have need of them as well, aren't you going to be a lot more loving to them? Aren't you going to be a lot more understanding to them? Aren't they going to be more apt to listen to you because they're, you're coming to them in a spirit of humility? So there's a lot of lessons we can draw from that, for sure. Excellent comment. It's hard to be lonely while helping others. If you are there helping somebody with their problem, probably not going to be lonely. Now, you might get go too far the other way and be overwhelmed with other people's problems, but the point is, if you are helping another person, you're not going to have to deal with loneliness because that will be alleviated. And so I think it's interesting that these two things wind up as the theme of the first verse because they kind of have the same answer to both problems, don't they? As long as you're there helping out one another and bearing one another's burdens, the loneliness is going to go away. And if you ever have helped somebody work through a spiritual problem, you bond very quickly over that, much more so than you would playing a video game or watching you know, football or something like that. That's, that's a very quick, very intimate bonding experience. And when you help somebody else with a burden, they usually want to help you too. So this is reciprocal. So the next time that you, kind of what Allison was talking about, you feel like you you can't go to somebody else that you have the devil tempting you with saying, no, no, nobody else understands and try to keep us all at arm's length away from one another. If they've already shared something with us, then we're more willing to to help, to be able to go to them and, and ask them for their help too. And so this is something that works both ways. And do you remember what Jesus did in the garden? I mean, that was literally as burdened as a human being can possibly be. More so than any other human being before or since has ever been burdened, the burden of the cross was awaiting him the next day. And he got his friends together, and they went and prayed. Now, the apostles did fall asleep, so, I mean, there's a lesson to be learned in that too. But the point is, Jesus' approach is, let me get my closest spiritual friends together, and we're going to get together and we're going to bring this to God. That's also not insignificant. And I think that if we did that more when we had these spiritual problems, we would be a lot better off as well. For the uh, self-righteous and proud, we'll go to Luke 18, 9-14. 
Now, he also told this parable some of the people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and began to pray in this regard to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, crooked, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing alone some distance away, was even unwilling to raise his eyes towards heaven, but was beating his chest saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself shall be exalted. I want to call your attention to something very specific in this verse. Do you notice back here we're looking at, uh, I believe it's verse 11. Uh, yeah. Um, he prayed this in regard to himself, which I think is a pretty good indication that his prayer was really more directed at him than it was at God. That he was saying these things in regard to what I've done. The tax collector, he's focused outwardly. You see, when we look at ourselves, it's very easy for us to think we're pretty good. Partially because we tend to be biased, but also because we're looking at ourselves in a vacuum to some extent, and we also are more apt to realize the things that we can be critical about in others, and therefore, by comparison, we look pretty good. The reason the tax collector is able to pray the way that he did was because he was not comparing himself to himself, he was comparing himself to God, and by comparison, that did not turn out well for him. And so... There is a sense of self-awareness that comes with this. And so that's kind of the same thing that's reflected in verse 2 of this song, right? It's a guy that's saying, you know, I I worked so hard for Jesus. I've sacrificed a lot. I'm really valuable to the kingdom. And Jesus says, I left a throne in heaven to come here to die for your sins. And didn't think twice about it. See, that's the key right there. And this song really talks about that. It's the same thing as what's going on in this passage. When we start thinking about what we've done, it's okay. We think we're pretty good puffing our chest out when we look at our accomplishments. When we start comparing what we've done to God, that humbles us real fast. And that's exactly what was going on in this tax collector's mind as well. He started thinking about himself being compared to God and realized his own inadequacy there. So that was, I think, the difference in these two men. And I think another important point to, to say here, in verse 9, it also said he viewed others with contempt. And so he was comparing himself to himself, but he was also comparing himself to other people around him. And he's like, oh, there's all these adulterers and crooked people, and, and thank, you know, thank goodness I'm like this tax collector over here in earshot of me. Um, but when we view others with contempt, we run into the same problem as we puff ourselves up and exalt ourselves. And God says the one who exalts himself will be abased, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. What does it mean to exalt? Haven't we always understood that there is a level of elevation that comes with holiness? Those are kind of used somewhat interchangeably in the Gospels. That There's this idea that the higher you are, the more holy you are, the more godlike you are. And we know that the most humble man that ever lived was Jesus Christ. So wouldn't it make sense that he who humbles himself becomes more godlike and thus is 
exalted. How often does our behavior say to God, I'm worth a lot to thee? Now, I think a lot of us, those of us, I'll finish this point up real quick. That was the bell, right? That was, okay, just making sure. Y'all changed it on me. It sounds like I'm in a supermarket. Someone's about to make an announcement. But anyway, uh, how often does our behavior say that? How often does our behavior say, I'm worth a lot to you? Even if we academically know that we shouldn't have that attitude, how often do we act as though we're privileged? How often do we act as though, well, this will be okay this one time because, you know, really, I've done an awful lot for God and I serve in the church. And I... It's a wrong attitude to have. And I think that we know that when we explain it this way, but ultimately, we fall a little short in our behavior. Um, I, I want to leave you with this real quick, and we'll, I'll make this point real quick, and then we'll wrap it up here. It's here somewhere, I promise. See how much stuff I did for y'all? Here we go. Quote by C.S. Lewis. Uh, one of the greatest Christian philosophers of our time, he said, Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. The point that he made in Mere Christianity when he said this is you can't be humble by trying very hard to be humble for the same reason you can't fall asleep by trying very hard to fall asleep because if you're trying hard, it, it does the opposite. And so humility is the same way. If we want to be truly humble, the key to that is not to look inside ourselves and try very hard to be humble. The key is to look at God and focus on Him so that we can ultimately humble ourselves because we know in comparison we don't measure up. So I appreciate so much your attention this evening. And ultimately, I do think that the answer to all of this is the theme of the song that we looked at, which is, if you want to sum up everything that I just said in one sentence, it's, if we want to have the solution to all these problems, burdens, lowliness, self-righteousness, whatever it is, the answer is to follow Christ. And that's why at the end of that song, instead of saying, um, Jesus telling the singer, take up your cross and follow me, the singer himself acknowledges that this is the way to go, that this is the way to solve his problem. So he says, I'll take my cross. He takes the initiative and says, and I'll follow thee. All right. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for your attention and comments.